Great. Let me just say that um, Cynthia and I really appreciated all the work that went into yesterday and the uh, time outside around the roasted pig. That was uh, just a great time together, and we too want to express our appreciation, and not only for those that prepared the uh, the event, but for those that participated. We really enjoyed the time together, and I think those are such critical times for us as a church family. I do want to mention that, did you notice that Jeff said we're walking through? This is not a sprint through the Gospel of John. So if you want to turn there to John chapter 1 with me, uh, we'll begin where we left off. As you turn in your copy of the scriptures, will you please, please believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? The Apostle John is begging you, according to the New American Standard Bible version, imploring you is NIV, ESV, pleading with you is NLT, the New Living Translation, and the message says attempting to persuade you. All those are translating the Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses to describe what John is doing here in this gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Remember, John stated his purpose of his book. In John chapter 20, verse 31. Keep your finger in John chapter 1 and turn there for just a moment. But these have been written, verse 31 of chapter 20, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So for not yet believers... John wants to expose you to an account of Jesus' life that God can use, or if he so chooses, to bring you to that point in your life where you will receive him, believe in his name, and become a child of God. That's John chapter 1, verse 12. But for those who have already believed, you've been born of God in verse 13 of chapter 1. God's presentation, John's presentation, this gospel, will help you to look at the author and perfecter of our faith in a new and a fresh way. A fresh look that will build confidence. Not self-confidence, but confidence in the life that God has made accessible in Jesus Christ. Notice the last half of verse 31 in John chapter 20. And that believing you might have life in his name. That's life both now and forever. It's both a quantity and a quality of life. Earlier this week in my time alone with God, I often refer to them as togs, I was reading in First Timothy. And I've been spending time there lately, in the book of First Timothy, making my way through it. And this past week I found myself in First in Timothy chapter 6. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a young understudy, one of his closest disciples by the name of Timothy. In fact, in Paul's own words, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, My true child in the faith. 
So Timothy was a young pastor that Paul assigned to the church in Ephesus. And listen to his words of exhortation in verse 12 of chapter 6. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of it, Timothy. Get a good grip on it and hang on for dear life. In the same way, for those who have already believed, the gospel of John is helping us. It's strengthening our grip on this life that we have in his name. The Apostle John begins his gospel account with laying out all his cards on the table. In fact, I would say that in this prologue, those first 18 verses of the book, we find the most definitive theological explanation for the deity of Christ found anywhere in all of Scripture. Although not named until verse 7, Jesus, in these opening verses, is referred to as a word that was with God from the very beginning, verse 1. Verse 3, the creator of all things. Verse 4, the source of life. Verse 9, the light that enlightens every man. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And verse 18, the only begotten of the Father and the one who explains him to us. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, presents John's Jesus God is God dressed in human flesh thesis. That's the point of his book. And once he has said that, he moves on. And he decides to support his thesis, first of all, by calling witnesses from the early days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And he begins with John the Baptist, the one who Jesus commanded as among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11 Verse 11, John the Baptist's testimony is presented on three consecutive days. Day one, his testimony is given in response to questions that were posed by a delegation of Levites and priests who were sent out from the city of Jerusalem to question and investigate his John and his ministry. Day two, He declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and then later as the Son of God in verse 34. Day three, as he's standing with two of his own disciples and watches Jesus walk by, he once again identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. And that brings us to last week where we saw John the Baptist fade into the shadows and the Apostle John turning our attention to some of those individuals who would go on and become part of that gang of 12. Those 12 who would later be commissioned as apostles. Two of John the Baptist's disciples who had been standing with him and heard John declare Jesus to be the Lamb of God followed him, Jesus, and they first acknowledged him as a rabbi, that is, communicating that they were saw him as a teacher and that they were willing to sit down at his feet and listen to what he had to say. They were teachable. And after spending time with Jesus, Andrew, one of those two, 
went off and found his brother, Simon Peter, and testified, we have found the Messiah. And that Andrew actually took his brother, Simon, by the hand and brought him to Jesus. He didn't merely point the way, but he brought him. And Jesus, envisioning, looked at Simon and envisioned a whole new future for him. And he renamed him Peter, which means the rock. Last week, we also noted the the ripple effect in all of this. From God to John the Baptist, from John the Baptist to two of his disciples, from Andrew, one of the two, to Simon Peter. And with each ripple, there was a credible endorsement of Jesus' deity. And so this morning, we're going to hear from two more eyewitnesses. Testimonies from individuals who had a face-to-face encounter with this God dressed in human flesh. And as a result of that personal encounter, they too are called as witnesses to Jesus' deity. But before we go there, if you are able, I would like to invite you to stand with me for the reading from God's word. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. Then I'll pray, and then we'll have a commercial break, and I'll explain that in just a moment. (laughs) Beginning at verse 35. John chapter 1. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated Peter. The next day, he purposed to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. 
You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You may be seated. Father in heaven, this book that we hold in our hands this morning is a reliable English translation of your inspired special revelation. We believe that. Thank you. We affirm that it is the word of God, breathed out, co-authored by men, collected and preserved for our benefit. We sit here this morning acknowledging that it is inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient, providing all the information that we need to live a holy, pleasing life, a life that will please you. Give us ears that hear, eyes that see, minds that understand, and wills that are determined to obey so that our lives might be transformed in ways that will bring you glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for the commercial. I was told just before I came up that the coffee pot was not working this morning, but it's working now. So if you're in desperate need of a coffee in order to stay awake through my presentation, by all means, help yourself to the coffee pot, and while you're back there, get one for me. No, I'm just kidding. I think I'll stay awake. The testimony of a changed life is powerful. The testimony of a changed life is powerful. But only if we're listening. This past week, I've been reading a book titled Expository Listening. And as I read and I prepared for this morning, I was reminded of the things that affect my ability to listen. And you know I have challenges hearing. You know I have challenges hearing. But now we're talking about listening. There's a difference. Not to hear, but to listen. Here's some challenges that come to mind. A closed mind, prejudices, unbelief, preoccupations, that's a big one for me, skepticism, sin, bitterness, distractions, lack of focus, maybe a touch of ADD, self-centeredness, or just plain old selfishness, lack of trust, even my past experiences. I've been burned once, you're not going to burn me again. This list could go on and on, couldn't it? Things that affect our ability to listen. I've already got challenges hearing. 
But a testimony of a changed life is powerful and compelling. And so we do need to hear and listen to the stories of how others have received him, how they've come to believe in his name. They can be powerful and compelling, especially when they're eyewitnesses. And they provide compelling confirmation of Jesus' deity. The story of an individual who testifies of Jesus' deity as a result of a personal encounter with him, that's a compelling testimony. Listen to John chapter 1 again, beginning at verse 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip became a witness for Jesus in response to Jesus' initiative. And notice, it was in fact Jesus who took the initiative on this occasion. Took the initiative to find and charge Philip. And so Philip serves as an exception to that ripple effect rule. Check it out. He's the only witness in this entire section who does not come to Jesus as a result of someone else's influence. But I do need to concede There is some debate on this subject because apparently there is no subject attached to the purposed or directed in verse 43. Did you notice that? In my translation, I have an NASB translation. It says the next day he purposed and my he is capitalized. That's an interpretation. It's not in the original. There's no object there. And so some would argue, well, that's not Jesus. That's actually Andrew. And so the next day, Andrew purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, not capitalized. And Jesus said to him, follow me to Philip. And then they look up to verse 41, and they say, you see, he found first his own brother Simon, and then you drop down. Second, he found Philip. Well, it is possible, but most biblical scholars are not convinced, and neither am I. So for this reason, what I would like to suggest is that this is an exception to the rule that John included for that very reason. Those who propose this interpretation reference verse 41, but I think it just makes it possible, but not necessarily true. Jesus, I believe, on this occasion, worked independently. There is no human mediator involved in his recruitment of Philip. And maybe that is the point, is what I'm suggesting. After all, it is his prerogative. Perhaps we should be more appreciative, you and I, when we have opportunities to introduce our friends or family members 
or workmates to Jesus. And for goodness sakes, let's put that silly notion right out of our minds that God somehow needs us in order to draw people to himself. It's just not true. And as I think about that, that becomes a little freeing. You know, it takes the pressure off. Our responsibility ends with proclamation, invitation, and sometimes, if we follow Andrew's example, accompanying them to Jesus. But those are privileges that God has graciously extended us without in any way, shape, or form obligating himself. It's probably more for our benefit. When we are permitted to be part of the process of introducing someone to Jesus, it just means that God's giving us an opportunity to, to work out our salvation, work out our sanctification as we introduce others to him. And let me be clear. None of us find Jesus. He is the one who finds us. We are the ones who are lost, incapable, apart from God's gracious initiative, of ever finding our way home. Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 in the open pasture and goes and finds the one that is lost. Luke chapter 15, verse 4. Christ suffered for sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Jesus, even if others are involved in making the introduction, is the one who finds us. Follow me in this passage in verse 43 is actually a present imperative, which means it's a command. And that's the reason I use the word charged rather than invitation. Peter charged Philip to follow him. The present imperative means that it's continuous action. So, Philip, keep on following me. So, Philip, in reality, becomes the first to be called by Jesus to become one of his followers. Follow me. Notice well that, that Philip's only claim to fame was that he comes from the same hometown as Andrew and Peter, Bethsaida, a small fishing community, community located way up in the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida, it actually means place of the fishery. Can you smell the fish? The same way garlic or the smell of fried food lingers in our breath and on our clothes, you could smell the fish as these three guys hung around on their clothes. They were from Bethsaida. And I have to admit, coming from a small southwestern town here in Ontario where the smell of crude oil still lingers in the air, I find this verse somewhat encouraging. The fact that Jesus... God dressed in human flesh took the initiative to recruit Philip as one of his twelve. Can you imagine? 
in a culture where pro athletes and Hollywood actors and actresses, big personalities, the rich and the famous, big names and big mouths, or maybe I should say loud voices, are often the ones that win the competition for attention. Jesus, he came to seek and to save the lost. The lost from a small fishing town way up in the north end of the Sea of Galilee. I find that encouraging. Following his personal encounter with Jesus, Philip found Nathaniel and shared his discovery of Jesus' true identity. Look at how he presented the version, his version of who Jesus was in verse 45. We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Three parts. We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. Secondly, his name is Jesus. And thirdly, he is the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Philip began his testimony by claiming that Jesus met all of the qualifications for the Messiah as laid out in the Old Testament scriptures. He then identifies them using his proper name, Jesus. And finally, he concludes by using that formal identification according to the customs of first century Palestine. It's like what you and I have on our passport. That's what he was giving him in the last. So in first century Palestine, you'd name the father. And in this case, it was assumed to be Joseph because it's early in the story. These disciples haven't figured out that Jesus was the incarnation of God. So it's still early. They think Joseph was his father and his hometown. He was from Nazareth because they didn't know that he was born in Bethlehem. They assumed that he was born in Nazareth because that's where he grew up. It's interesting how Nathaniel responds to all of that. Follow me. And then he went off to see Nathaniel. The ripple effect. It continues. We're on again. So Jesus' influence on people's lives confirmed his deity. Earlier, I referred to the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. Let's turn there for a moment. And we'll just do a quick flyover of this chapter. Notice verses 1 to 7. We have this lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. Verses 1 to 7 is the lost sheep that we referred to earlier. Verses 8 to 10, we find a lost coin. And then in verses 11 through to the end of the chapter, 32, we have the lost or prodigal son. Now, there's a lot to consider in this chapter. But let me just point out, really keep it simple for our purposes this morning. Here we have, in each case, Something that was considered to be of great value was lost. Whether it be a sheep, a coin, or a son. And there is great rejoicing when that thing that was lost 
is now found. Jesus himself claimed, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Acts 9 records a dramatic conversion of the Apostle Paul. On his way to the city of Damascus, he's found falling down to the ground as a light from heaven flashed around him. Listen to the exchange that took place in verses 4 to 6 in Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told what you must do. The apostle Paul, actually it was Saul, was renamed Paul, went on from that experience to receive him and believe in his name, become the apostle to the Gentiles, and wrote almost 50% of our New Testament, the scriptures. A significant, dramatic conversion. Later, that same apostle wrote these words, recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, 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 the old things passed away, behold, new things have come. The testimony of a changed life is powerful and compelling. Your testimony is powerful and compelling. Believe it and share it. Don't underestimate it. Entertainment or drama does not equal Compelling. The Spirit of God makes a testimony compelling. Our job is to be clear and truthful and leave the results up to God. Secondly, don't require perfection. It's not about you or me. People are looking for authenticity. None of us are perfect. Forgiven, yes, but not perfect, not yet. So as we respond to our less than perfectness, that can either affirm or discredit, undermine our testimony. And thirdly, please don't wait until you think you have all the answers. Here's the right answer. Here it is. Come and see. Come and see. Our confidence is never to be in our eloquence or in our intellects, but in Christ alone. I will tell you a secret, and it's really a personal confession. Just before I come and preach, and I've been doing this for years, I recite in my mind, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse five. Your testimony is compelling. It's powerful. Believe it and share it. The testimony of a changed life is powerful and compelling. The story of an individual who confesses Jesus' deity having overcome personal prejudice and skepticism is compelling. Let's read on in John chapter 1. 
Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathanael became a witness for Jesus when confronted by Jesus' omniscience. Philip helped Nathanael to overcome his prejudice with just a gracious invitation. Come and see. Did you notice how quickly Nathanael zeroed in on Nazareth? Seemed like it had barely left Philip's lips. All else was forgotten. Nazareth became Nathanael's obsession. And prejudice does that. It blinds us. We're left impaired mentally, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, rationally. We can't think straight. Chuck Swindoll reminds us prejudice is a learned trait. You're not born prejudice. You're taught it. Well, John doesn't disclose who taught Nathaniel. Certainly there was prejudice between Judea and Galileans in those days. But this was a Galilean against a Galilean. And since Nathaniel's hometown was Cana, it's about 10 miles to the north of Nazareth, maybe this is just another case of small-town rivalry. Cynthia and I know all about that. Raised in Petrolia, me. And Cynthia was raised six miles north in the village of Wyoming. Petroya was about twice the size. We had the high school. Kids from Wyoming were bust to Petroya. In Petroya, we played hardball. In Wyoming, they played softball. <laughs> but I remember the guys in Petroya conceding that all the hot girls were in Wyoming. <laughs> I'd have to agree with that. <laughs> But the rivalry is real. It was real for us, and it was real for Nathaniel. I love Philip's response to Nathaniel's prejudicial statement. Come and see. Just come and see. The quiet confidence of someone who's experienced the transformative power of an encounter with Jesus. We don't have to get defensive or argumentative, or raise our voices. Don't sulk or play the victim, or retreat with inappropriate apologies. Nathaniel, just come and see for yourself. Present your testimony. Speak clearly with conviction, but with gentleness and respect. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus disarmed Nathanael with words of affirmation. You see, the old saying is true. 
you can catch more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. Jesus' affirmation acknowledged that Nathaniel was a, an Israelite with no deceit. The word translated deceit can be trickery or slyness. Some com- common synonyms would be duplicity, fraudulent, pretense. Genesis chapter 27 provides us with a great example of everything Nathaniel was not. It's the story, you'll remember it, of Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older brother and was entitled to his father's blessing. But while he's out hunting for his father's favorite meal, his younger brother, coached by his mother, comes up with a plan. They go to great lengths to convince the father that Jacob is actually Esau. In the end, because of their deceit and trickery, Jacob is able to steal Esau's blessing. And here in John chapter 1, Jesus states that there's none of that in this guy, in in Nathaniel's profile. This guy is a straight shooter. If you took a continuum and you put deceit on one end, and you look to the far end, you might see things like trustworthiness, honesty, truthful, fair. But Nathaniel, true to that kind of character, comes back at Jesus when he hears this compliment. And he's thinking, okay, this guy is trying to hoodwink me, use flattery, telling people that what he knows they love to hear about themselves. Can you hear the skepticism dripping from Nathaniel's question? How do you know me? Jesus goes on to display, a, put on a display of omniscience that led to Nathaniel's confession. To state it simply, Nathaniel was pushed past the tipping point with Jesus' supernatural display of omniscience. Omniscience means all-knowing. So Jesus knew where Nathaniel was prior to being found by Philip. How was that possible? For an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, Nathaniel would have been well acquainted with a Yahweh and his omniscience. For example, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I am far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. That's from the pen of the psalmist, the psalm that... Nathaniel would have been all too familiar about with being a good Israelite. God's omniscience he was familiar with. But Jesus' display of this kind of omniscience? Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What a confession. All the way from prejudice and skepticism to belief. Such a long way in just a short period of time. Folks, it doesn't have to take forever 
And then Jesus made a promise. He promised there was more to come in verses 50 and 51. It's like we're coming to the end of one of those chapters in David the Baldacci's. Anybody know David Baldacci? Fiction writer? Or um, who's the other one? Vince Flynn is the guy that I'm into now. You come to the end of a chapter and you can hardly set the book down. He's hooked you for the next And it's 11 o'clock at night, but you got to turn the page, right, and find out what's going to happen. I almost get that kind of feeling in John at the end of John chapter 1. Maybe perhaps that's what he intended here. An interesting note, the you in verse 51 has now become plural. So this message is not just for Nathaniel at this point. Again, clearly, Jesus is pointing to an event recorded way back in Genesis chapter 28. I already mentioned how Jacob, the deceiver, had stolen his father's or his older brother's blessing. In Genesis chapter 8, now he's running for his life, thinking that his older brother is going to kill him for what he's done. Let's turn there, Genesis chapter 28, for just a moment. So Jacob, again, a co-conspirator with his mother, has decided that he will head north to his uncle Laban's place in order to escape his brother. In verse 11, we read Genesis chapter 28. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and laid down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder, or a staircase is a better interpretation, was set on the earth with its top reaching to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants." Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. What a sad statement, eh? The Lord was in this place. And I did not know it. That confession at the end of verse 16 has to give us pause. But back to John chapter 1. At the very least, Jesus is claiming If you stick around, you're going to see some supernatural evidence that will make this display of omniscience seem like child's play. Jesus' display of supernatural ability confirms his deity. The Apostle John goes on to include seven miracles in his gospel account, the ministry of Jesus. Chapter 2, changing water into wine at a wedding in Canaan. 
Chapter 4, the healing of the royal official's son in Capernaum. Chapter 5, healing the paralytic at Bethsaida. Chapter 6, feeding 5,000. Chapter 6, walking on water. Chapter 9, healing the man blind from birth. Chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. The four gospel accounts alone, there are 37 different miracles performed by Jesus. For those with ears to hear and eyes to see, the evidence of Jesus' deity is overwhelming. Don't try and explain the unexplainable. Like those why me questions. You know what I mean. A better question might be, Lord, I know you are sovereign. I don't understand. But help me to know what you're trying to teach me through these circumstances. There are some things in life that defy explanation. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 18 to 19 reads, There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. I can't speak for you, but in my case, I'm willing to concede there's a whole lot more than four that I do not understand. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Actually, let's turn there. First, this is another one of those verses you should probably have underlined. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. But a natural man, that's a, a man apart from God, a man or woman who does not yet believe, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Regardless of how good your explanation is, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or discerned. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 reads, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Just because we can't see it or explain it doesn't mean it isn't true. The testimony of a changed life, it's powerful and compelling. The story of an individual who testified of Jesus' deity as a result of a personal encounter with him is compelling. The story of an individual who confesses Jesus' deity having overcome personal prejudice and skepticism is compelling. Philip became a witness for Jesus' response to Jesus' initiative. Nathaniel became a witness for Jesus when confronted with Jesus' omniscience. Jesus' influence in people's lives, confirms his deity. Jesus' display of supernatural ability confirms his deity. Your testimony is compelling. Believe it and share it. Don't try to explain the unexplainable. Let's pray.
Father, thanks for this account of Philip's discovery of you and then the way he impacted Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, he too makes a confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King. May you help us to come to grips with the reality of your deity, of Jesus' deity, knowing that that impacts the way that we'll live our lives, gives us confidence in our faith, realizing that a a right understanding of Christ is so critical to the foundation of our faith. So help us, grow us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.